This episode of How I Built It is brought to you by two great sponsors. The first is our season-long sponsor. Liquid Web has been best known as a managed hosting company with tons of options. It's also designed a managed WordPress offering that is perfect for mission-critical sites. If you're looking for improved performance, maximized uptimes, and incredible support, Liquid Web is the partner you've been looking for. Every Liquid Web managed WordPress customer has iTheme Sync integrated into their managed portal, allowing them to update several sites with a single touch. Liquid Web hosts all of my critical websites and I couldn't be happier with them. If you sign up today, using the discount code HOWIBUILTIT33, you get 33% off for the next six months. Visit buildpodcast.net slash liquid to get started. That's buildpodcast.net slash liquid. It's also brought to you by Seriously Simple Podcasting. Seriously Simple Podcasting lets you manage your podcast feed and content right inside WordPress. With the introduction of Seriously Simple Hosting, now you can host your podcast media files on a dedicated hosting platform that is completely integrated with your WordPress site. So publishing your next podcast is just as easy as creating a new post, uploading your file, and clicking publish. With our edit as you upload feature, there's no need to wait around for your file to upload to finish writing your episode's show notes. They give you full control of the post editor while your podcast file is uploading to their servers. And How I Built It listeners can use the promo code BUILTIT for your first month completely free. And if you're moving from another hosting provider or have been self-hosting your media files, they offer a complete concierge migration for all your episodes to Seriously Simple Hosting. I've been playing around with Seriously Simple Podcasting for the last couple weeks, and I've got to say, I'm really impressed. As somebody who uses WordPress with podcast hosting, I think it's a great one-stop shopping tool for your podcast needs. So go ahead and visit buildpodcast.net slash podcasting to sign up today. And remember to use the code BUILTIT, that's B-U-I-L-T-I-T, for your first month completely free. Now this week we have a very special guest, Mike Rohde of Sketchnotes fame, and we're going to be talking to him about how he came up with the Sketchnotes idea, his Sketchnotes army, and much more. I'm very excited to have him as the 50th guest on this podcast. So thanks so much for joining me. Definitely stick around. It's an absolutely great conversation. Uh, And without further ado, on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of How I Built It, the podcast that asks, how did you build that? Today, my guest is the leader of the Sketchnotes Army, Mike Rohde. How are you, Mike? I'm doing good, Joe. Thanks for having me on. This is really fun. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm, I'm really stoked that we can we can get you on here. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you're on the show because you're different from a lot of my other guests for a few reasons. First of all, Sketchnotes is a very analog thing. Uh, most of the time we talk about things in the digital space on this show. But also, uh, you and I are both published by the same uh, book publisher, so mm-hmm. which I think is a first for this show. So I'd love to talk a, a little bit about that as well. But first, why don't you tell us who you are, what you do, and how you came up with the idea for uh, Sketchnotes? Sure. So I'm Mike Rohde. I live in Milwaukee, and I am a designer. I've been a designer for many years. Um, I actually started my career in print design uh, pre-internet. So I've got the perspective of coming into the internet when it was a new 
weird thing that nobody understood. And I was very fascinated by it. In many cases, other people were not, but I sort of dove head, headlong into it and it became a big part of my life. So uh, the second part of my career, I spent as a web designer. So I did some of the early web stuff, did coding. Then I got to the point where I realized there were far better coders than me. And then I focused on the design and hired really good people. Uh, and then um, once I moved through that process, the third, I guess the third act that I've been in is user experience design. So I think I've actually always had the perspective of how things work and how to make them simple and work easily. So it was a natural fit when I had an opportunity to join a firm here in Milwaukee that focuses on human-centered or user experience design. And I've been doing that for about seven years now, currently contracting at a large uh, insurance company and uh, providing user experience and design services to software teams. So I work with lots of developers and that could be an interesting angle that we can take uh, specifically on applying sketchnoting. But then finally, as far as sketchnoting, sketchnoting is, I like to call it notes plus. So it's this idea that you take the notes you're writing already and you simply add visuals to them. And then you sort of process the, through them through the filter of what's what are the big ideas or what are the important things that I can take value from. You focus on those and you capture those and everything else. You let it go because obviously you're not going to apply those to your life. So why <laughs> why record the things that you don't care about? So So that's really the the core of it. It's a visual thinking uh, approach to taking notes. And it, it sort of got started when I, uh, I was actually a really fantastic note taker, but I hated it because I was in the opposite mode where I recorded everything. And then I had to parse through all this stuff that I wrote and try and figure out what was valuable. And that's, that's where I really realized like, why am I recording everything and then forcing myself to process it all again? Why don't I just process it all in the moment, do the analysis in the moment, and just take the things that I think are valuable then. And when I once I did that, I suddenly found all this free time, in a sense, to visualize it. And that's where my design background came in to start using drawings and, and typography and things to make my notes more interesting. And it was a way for me to solve a painful problem. And I thought, hey, there's probably other people like like me out there. So maybe I should share this idea. So that's that's where it led to building a community, doing lots of sharing, and eventually getting an opportunity to write a book and then another book about the the, uh, the approach to sketchnoting so that other people could adopt the idea. Nice. Yeah. So that's, that's awesome for a few reasons, because you do have the kind of technical background of other guests that have been on the show. And then we talk about, you know, everybody probably who listens to this show has gone to a, a conference, has seen a talk, has sat in a classroom where you spend time writing down everything that the person's saying, and then you're not you're not really listening, right? You don't really get what they're saying because you're too busy writing it down. But with the sketch notes, uh, you're hearing it, you're writing down the important stuff. So I'm sure it probably has some effect on your retention rate as well. Would you would you argue that? Yes, I think it's it certainly does, and I think a lot of the reason why there was some, some actually recent research that was done uh, that the if you want to look up the research the the people who conducted it are uh, someone named Mueller and Oppenheimer, and uh, basically in a nutshell the test they did is they pitted uh, longhand note takers versus typists, and they played like a TED talk or something like that and said we want you to record you know, the things that are most valuable from the talk, and then we're going to test you. So they set them loose. They had two groups, the one that was longhand, one that was typist, and they did the, uh, they watched the video and took notes. Immediately afterwards, both 
groups did fine. You know, it was so fresh in their memory, it sort of didn't matter. But when they came back and tested them in a later time, I think it was maybe a week later, the keyboardist's uh, memory retention had dropped significantly compared to the longhand uh, writers, and they were kind of or kind of confused or just kind of surprised by that. They thought maybe you know having that much more speed typing, it would be better note, you know, better retention, but it actually didn't work out that way. And what they realized was the longhand note takers were actually doing analysis because they came to the point where they realized there's no way that I can handwrite uh, verbatim notes that this person is saying. I have to make some decisions about what's, what are the concepts, right? You had to sort of do some formation in their heads and using their hand to write. And so what they did is they ran the test again because they felt like, well, if we tell the keyboardists that they shouldn't take verbatim notes, maybe then, you know, the quality of their retention would be the same. And um, so they told them that in the second run, and the keyboardist just fell right back into typing verbatim notes again, and it really didn't make a difference. So um, it was kind of an interesting uh, bit of research that suggests analysis is a big part of the value of note-taking and the retention that you're, the memories that you're making are all part of that analysis that's happening in the moment, whether you're, in this case, they weren't drawing anything, they're simply writing longhand. But the, I think the other thing they sort of seemed to discover was using your hand to do the writing as opposed to keyboarding was a little bit more connected. So the whole body movement and brain, and so the kinesthetic aspect of it seemed to be more significant with longhand writing. And I imagine sketchnoting would be the same way. And it really focuses your mind in a different way about listening, right? So if you're listening simply to record what's being said, it's almost like passing through your mind. You're not really capturing anything. Mm -hmm. Or if you're doing analysis, you have to listen, right, to make sense of it and to sort of piece it together and make it logically make sense to you or to call out the things that don't make sense if you feel like that person is, you know, not not saying that something that makes sense so you can later research it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that makes perfect sense. And especially, you know, if somebody's using their own laptop, there's also like the distraction factor, sure, right? Sure. So that's that's very cool. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be included in your uh, your second sketch notes book, uh, mm-hmm. Sketchnoting. I believe it was a Yankee. It was Yankee Mets game. I remember because yep. I drew the little subway train, the subway exactly, series. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so but we'll we'll dive into that a bit more later because it is a fun topic. Uh, when you so let's talk about now that we have a background on sketch notes, what was the, I guess, the research process like for deciding to write the book and then ultimately getting the book accepted by Peach Pit? So um, actually, I was really fortunate that I had a fellow author who made an introduction for me. So this a guy named Von Glitchka. You can look him up. It's He lives out in uh, Oregon. He's an amazing illustrator. And he became fascinated with sketch notes, and we became friends. And when I went to Portland for another event, we had uh, dinner together, and over dinner he said, "Mike, you've got to write a you've got to write a book about the sketch noting stuff." And I said, "But you know, I'm writing blog posts, and you know, I'm 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 getting all this attention. Like, it's not you need to write a book." I was like, "Okay," and he said, "I know the person who you need to talk to," and he introduced me to his editor later that evening. So that was certainly a big part of you know getting attention. A lot of times it's just hard to get people to you know be open to your idea, but I think what you do find is um, people that do uh, acquisitions, they'll call themselves acquisition editors, are always looking for really interesting ideas, different angles on things that haven't been covered. And that's, you know, 
part of the whole book process is how do you do something unique that also is still relevant and in context to other things, right? It can, if it's too far out there, you may not have any audience, but if it's too much like everything else, then it's like, why, why bother making another book? So you got to find that interesting balance between the two. So he, he made that introduction. I think that was a big part of it. Nice. Yeah. And uh, with, uh, with book writing, especially because, um, I'm sure I don't have any numbers to back this up. So this is just anecdotal, but I imagine it's a lot harder to uh, justify the value of writing and printing books now, you know, because there's eBooks, there's video courses and things like that. You know, I'd love to do a follow-up, a version two of my book, Responsive Design with WordPress, which uh, to your point was about timing. There was not a book like that Mm -hmm. already and it was two fairly popular topics but I, you know, I don't know if the bandwidth is there for the publisher to be able to do that now or to justify doing that now. I think so. it's a much more challenging environment than when we wrote our books. Um, mm-hmm. My first book was 2012, so that seems like eons ago. That's like five years ago now. Yeah. And the which second, is like 100 in internet yeah, Exactly. And then yeah. the second was 2014, which is three years ago, which is still like forever ago in, in those terms. And um, I think in that short time, I think there's still a place for books, but I think it's a much more niche place in some ways. And I almost think um, a lot of ways video has sort of uh, taken a big chunk of that. I think the challenge and the reason why I haven't really focused uh, on doing a course or anything on sketchnoting is uh, I just don't know if I if the formula is quite right yet. I see lots of courses out there and it's it helps some people. Uh, but I know like Seth Godin did some research on the courses he did. And I mean, he's Seth Godin, right? He should have right. like, you know, 90% uh, completion rates. And he was getting like really tiny completion rates, like 5% or something outrageously low. And he was just dissatisfied with it. And that's what pushed him to do something he calls the Alt-MBA, which was a much more, um, he said, I think his concept of the problem with video courses is generally that there's really no accountability, right? You can sign up for a million courses and just never you watch a couple episodes and never finish them. Uh, and there's no impetus to really do it because there's no one really, you know, there's no one waiting for you in the room that you're going to, like in a typical classroom. And there's just not a lot of accountability. So he he structured the Alt-MBA in different ways by, you know, building in accountability. He's got smaller groups. He charges a pretty fair fairly high price. I think it's like $3,000 or something like that. So it's much more expensive. So he's sort of like taking the the video course model and sort of turning it on his head. But he's doing it for a reason because he wants engagement and change and not just earning money off of a course that people watch 22% of and then quit, right? So, but I think that that space is sort of absorbing a lot of the training stuff. And I think there's still a place for books, but I think maybe it's almost more like kickstarted books. So if you have someone that you like the work that they're doing and you and they have an idea for a book and you believe in that person, it's almost like personality-based in some ways. Like, do I believe in what Joe can produce related to anything around responsive? Like, you could do responsive design for weasels or something and you might get, you know, backing, <laughs> right? But, I mean, that's, of course, a silly example. But I think we're maybe it's moving in that direction where you sort of buy the work that the person does. And then you're just interested in seeing what they might come up with. I know that there's a variety of people, someone like uh, Paul Jarvis, who does uh, a lot of work. And he sort of sells on that concept, right? That he sort of has a certain perspective. And if you like his perspective, you'll probably like most of the things he produces. So it's a a challenge, right? I think there's still going to be the big books, right? The ones where you get quarter million, half million, million dollar advance. But 
might have to research that two or three years and do this huge proposal. And it's like almost like a business plan. Right. Uh, and there's expectations around what, you know, what you're going to deliver. So it's the bar is higher. We're like, I think we were in the tech press where the bar was a little bit lower. The budgets were a little bit lower. The advantages were lower and they could take more risks, right? It was almost like investing in startups, small startups or something like a incubator or something. So I think that if you think of it that way, like those big books you see when you go to the airport, those are like, you know, half million dollar advances in some cases more, but it's also a huge research process to get to the even get accepted. Right. So it's another whole, whole completely different animal, completely different game. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, to, to that point, right. You, you, you have two books out. The video course stuff is interesting. We've talked about that on this show with people like Troy Dean and Sean Hesketh, which I will link in the show notes, along with, with the study that you mentioned, Mike. So, But you, you do have a, a community, right? So I, I like to ask, do you talk to anybody about business advice or direction or things like that? But maybe you could talk to this uh, this community of sketchnoters uh, that have, have been built up over the last few years. Well, yeah, I think that's the most exciting thing and probably the proudest thing. Like, you know, I, by all rights, I should be proud of my books. And of course I am. But I think I'm actually more proud of the of the uh, community they got that's been built over time, because I think that's the thing that's going to make sketchnoting go forward. It's people, you know, getting turned on by the idea and applying it in their own lives in unique ways that I could have never imagined. Like, that's really exciting to me to see people like uh, my friend Rob, who's a physicist, using it to capture ideas around his his work in uh, physics, right? Like really heavy-duty scientific concepts. And he's using it as a way to express ideas. Like, I could have never imagined that in my books, right? That's just not my space. But the the concept was general enough that it uh, opened up the doors for people like him and and a variety of other people. A lot of teachers are really grabbing onto the idea as a way to uh, help their students who have a tendency to want to doodle anyway. Well, why couldn't we co-opt that concept and actually encourage them to doodle if that's what they if that's how they think and work? That that could help them to really absorb and internalize the concepts that they're trying to teach in in their own way. So. I have a variety of friends in this community that I rely on. Uh, one big person is uh, Mauro Toselli, who basically is the, the chief uh, operating sketchnoter of the Sketchnote <laughs> Army, which is sketchnotearmy.com. And, and the focus of that site uh, is simply that we promote other people's work uh, from beginners to more experienced people. It's just an outlet to show what you can do with sketchnotes and to get as wide a variety of people uh, and the work that they do up there so that if somebody comes to it, they can look through and say, wow, they're using it in, you know, in business or uh, science or education or travel or, you know, all these wide a variety of uses. It provides sort of that reference. And I think that's the beauty of, of, the, of the community for me is just seeing how wide and how deep uh, the concept can be applied. And uh, it's fun. Some of my lifelong friends have been built through this community. So, uh, it's it's definitely benefited me in many ways, and I'm pretty excited about the opportunities that I see ahead for the for the community as a whole and all the places where sketchnoting could go that I still I can't even imagine yet. There might be many other ways it could be applied. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. And that was kind of the the impetus to your second book, right? So to set this up, there was the sketchnotes. There was I'm drawing a book. Was it the just called Sketchnotes? Sketchnotes Sketch Handbook. handbook. Was the first one. That's it. Yeah. And Sketchnote Workbook was the second one. So mm-hmm. the handbook introduces the notion, and the workbook kind of shows you 
all of the many ways that you could apply sketch notes, right? right so, right. you know, like I said, I, I sketched a Yankee game and instead of just like keeping a box score, which is an impossible thing to do, especially if you're watching like a National League game, you know, it, it's harder. But sketching the the game, uh, I still like remember uh, like Pineda pitched and he had like 11 strikeouts because I, re- mm. I wrote like an ace. Mm-hmm. And that game was years ago. Uh, the book came out in 2014. So I did it in probably 20... 2013. 2013 right and so you know it's very cool to kind of see you take this concept and apply it to things where you might not even consider doing it because you're not taking notes right it's it's more the sketching something that's happening than just Mm -hmm. straight up taking notes about something yeah it's more like capturing the experience in a lot of ways yeah very cool very cool Uh, i remember i learned like in an art class i took in high school uh the the notion of the thumbnail sketch Mm -hmm. You know, an artist would see something and then like draw it on their thumbnail so that later they can do like a proper painting or or Mm -hmm. apply it. So that's very cool. So, okay, so we've talked all about your the community and sketch notes. Uh, So let's talk about how you built it, where it is your books. I'd love to talk about the uh, the publishing process going from idea to, to execution. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, sure. And I, I would say that I'm probably a little bit unique in some ways in that um, I came from a print design background. So I had the uh, the ability to actually and did many annual reports and other large, long format uh, books from design to production. So I would actually turn files over to printers and go on press checks and make sure the colors are right and all that kind of stuff. So I had that advantage. So going into it, I was offered the opportunity to pretty much do the whole book. So it was a huge control thing, right? Where I think in your case, you probably did screenshots and you wrote and probably mm-hmm. got uh, approvals for, you know, screenshots of other people's work and stuff like that. Obviously, you wrote the concepts and worked with an editor and all that kind of stuff. So I had the distinct advantage of being able to do everything everything from the writing of the concepts all the way to delivering the files. So the way it started was um, from this, uh, the story I told about Vaughn connecting me with the um, with the acquisitions editor, Nikki McDonald, it then went to a proposal stage. So we basically, I wrote a, an outline of what I thought the book would be. We broke it into chapters and I gave an overview of each chapter and what it would cover in a relatively good amount of detail. They, they, provi- they provided actually a structure for how they wanted things to be received. So that was very helpful to have a template that would show exactly what they wanted to see and how they wanted to see it. Uh, and then my acquisitions editor, Nikki, actually reviewed the proposal and gave me advice. And so we kept tuning it until we got it the way she thought she could win that pitch. And then she took it into the, there's apparently like board meetings typically where a variety of people sit on the board and they make decisions about which books to make an offer for and which ones they, they're going to decline or whatever, or they maybe push back and say, refine this further. So she took it in and um, she made a great pitch and they were willing to take it on. Around that same time, I'd become aware of um, getting uh, sort of a, a literary agent through my friend Austin Cleon. He had some stuff that he posted about that. So through another person that I'd worked with, Chris Gillibo, I'd done some illustrations for his book, $100 Startup, and he had an agent. So he connected me with this agent. And the agent, I thought the value for me on the agent was partially that he was able to negotiate probably a little bit more money for the advance and some of the details on royalties. But I think the... The reason I wanted an literary agent and I'm willing to take some of the earnings that I have and give it to him is he provided and continues to provide advice for me, the publishing space, which I am not an expert in, right? Like I knew nothing about 
publishing things. So having a, an expert in that space who is a neutral party, not my publisher, that I could ask questions like, you know, what, what should I expect? Or, you know, what happens if this happens? Or how should I think about this? He could give me sort of the why things work the way they do. And some of the details, he could also tell me like, you know what I'm hearing from from other publishing houses that this this is a problem or, you know, I could ask him questions that were outside of what maybe uh, an editor might be willing or able to respond with. So it's sort of like having a third party advisor wow. in some sense, right? So that's the way I looked at it. And he continues to be valuable in that way. So I connected with him. He did some negotiation. We came up with a deal, signed the contract. And then started working, basically taking the outline that we used to sell the book and expanding it uh, one chapter at a time. So I would take each one of those items and then write a very detailed outline for each one to sort of figure out what it was that we were trying to say. And then providing examples, like how would we show this, like describing how might we illustrate this thing? What is there a sketch note that I know of that could illustrate this concept and started to build each chapter that way? Uh, and then at some point, we it turned into a manuscript where I actually started writing all the text that you see in the book. The editor would go through it and do the modifications and, you know, advise on, you know, lots of grammar because my grammar wasn't that great in a lot of cases. So I I needed the help there. Uh, so eventually we would arrive at a final manuscript that everybody approved and liked. Now, in this case, someone like you might then turn that over to the production team and they would come up with a design and ask mm-hmm. for advice like okay you got a screenshot for this joe yeah. like do you want it do you have a you, if you're showing wordpress like what what shot do we need to put here you'd have to manage that stuff right in my case with this book because it was so visual and so unusual and i was in control of that from a design perspective i actually did thumbnails you mentioned before thumbnails for paintings i did thumbnails for the whole book so i got a i built a template for myself and that I pencil sketched basically every chapter of the book at a very high level based on the manuscript that we'd created, sketching out what stuff might appear where and, and that kind of stuff. And oddly enough, when we finished the book, the, the, the thumbnail was actually pretty close to what the final book was. I mean, there was obviously modifications and structural changes, but for the most part, it was a pretty good representation of the book. I got that sort of approved by the editor, editorial team, and then we started to go to work in sort of making it happen. So that was a combination of a couple things. We had the manuscript ready, so that was good to go. But I then I started having to do all the illustration, all the lettering. One of the other tidbits about my book is I, because I was a print designer, I knew if I had to handwrite the whole book, it would be insane. It would be a nightmare. So I reached out to a friend who knew a type designer, and we we partnered up, and he built a typeface for me from my handwriting a couple of different handwriting styles. Wow. Uh, and that allowed me to basically lay out the book like I would have any other typeface. So once we got to the point of putting all the illustration and the words together, that was actually my handwriting as a typeface. And the end result of that too was, because we had this product, we actually turned around and we formalized it, we cleaned it up, and now we're selling that as a typeface so that others can use on their own projects. So it turned out to be kind of a nice benefit in the end that we we sort of thought maybe we could do, and it turned out to be pretty good. So I yeah. would do, you know, illustrations and just lay the whole thing out in black and white. And, you know, the editor again would go through it and check everything, and we would sort of get it nailed down in black and white. And then the last couple steps were uh, we did two colors. So it was black and orange and grays and tints of orange. So I would go through after the approval was done and colorize it. And then it was pretty much done. I would turn it over, the final files, over to the production people, and they ran ran it on the press. 
That's man, that's awesome. And that is, yeah, like you said, uh, I, so I'm not sure what your timeline was like. My timeline was a little tighter because they wanted to get it out by the end of the year. They accepted the proposal in May and they wanted it out by December. Okay. So I was essentially doing like a chapter every two weeks or every 10 days or something like that. But you're, you're right. I would write a chapter. I would include screenshots. I would send it off to the first editor. They would make edits. They'd send it back to me. I'd make edits. I'd send it off to the technical editor mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that it was programmatically correct. And so that was a, a bit of a whirlwind process for me. And then I essentially, you know, I approved designs of the cover and of the layout and stuff like that. But I, I wasn't involved in that at all. Essentially, I handed everything over the final manuscript in October. Uh, I saw a final PDF, I think, in the middle of November, and it hit shelves in the middle of December. Yeah, that's that sounds like, I think I had, I think if you counted, so I think of it two ways. If you count it from when, if I include the proposal part of it, it was about a year for each one. And if you conclude the approval to the final production that I handed over, or the that was like nine months, which is kind of insane. Now, the other twist that we had is, Peach Pit on both books wanted to do videos. We actually turned all the concepts into a video series. And fortunately, I had a friend who did does video, Brian Artka. So he worked with me to shoot all the videos. And I had a script writer that helped turn the manuscript into scripts for TV, more or less. Nice. And we shot video. So it was really insane. Two yeah. really insane schedules for not only doing a book and all the production, but then doing all the video as well. But I think... The having the control was really attractive, and and now I'm really happy we did it because I think we made it exactly the way we wanted. And probably the advantage in your case is they probably had somewhat of a template they could re- rely mm-hmm. on, right? So once they had right. your text, they flow it in, and you know it doesn't take too too long for them to tweak some styles and make it unique, but yet still follow a standard format. So yeah, yeah, I I remember <laughs> I remember like I had the cover. And the cover was out in the wild as like pre-order. Mm-hmm. And then I saw another cover that looked almost exactly like mine. And I said, hey, guys, you know, it looks like somebody's ripping off the cover of my book. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, yeah, well, that's actually just clip art. So you'll probably see that a lot. And I was like, oh, OK, cool. Like, I like I didn't care. It was just like funny. It, it didn't even dawn on me that they would use like a stock thing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so but uh, nevertheless, we are man, I can't believe how fast time has gone. We're coming up on time. And I have. There are a couple more questions I want to ask. We've talked about the process essentially from writing it to it hitting the shelves, but maybe we can do like a combined question of what are the big transformations since launch? So maybe you could talk about like the promotion process or things that you, if you notice like any errors, there are errors in my book. And then what are your plans for the future of sketchnotes? Interesting. So PR was as much work as in some ways as the book itself, which you probably mm-hmm. could attest to right now. Mm-hmm. Sort of my angle on it was I had sort of over time built up people that I thought would be good candidates to receive samples of the book. My angle was to, to give away tons of free samples to people I thought could be influencers, people that would be welcoming to the idea, who would be interested in the idea. And if people asked me, I would send them samples. And Peachfit was has been great about uh, anybody that I can send uh, a name, address, and an email, and a telephone number in some cases, like for international, they would send books to them. So I think that was a huge part in getting traction. I think there was also the benefit of uh, there was sort of a desire to have some direction on how to do this sketch noting because it was, like you said, becoming more popular at most conferences. And people would see it and think, well, you know, I can't do that. So 
but if if they were open to it, there was sort of a, a book that would give them direction on how to get started and to move it forward. So I think PR-wise, I did as many podcasts like this as I could. I did interviews, like any kind of opportunities to really sell the idea that, that included talks. And and that, I think, really helped sort of the all this slower uh, ground, working on the ground with people, individuals, one at a time, has sort of uh, built up over time. And it sort of helped build a momentum because I think it's a little bit more organic and natural in a lot of ways. As far as where I think it's going, right now I'm really excited because I have an opportunity to do a lot of teaching. And I think that's really where I wanted to go with this was how can I take these concepts and go in and mainly with teams now, I've done some individual stuff where I invite people to come to a place and those are often a ton of work. And sometimes you wonder whether the the return, I mean, the return is great from the impact side, but like the earnings that you make from all the work you have to do to, to get a, a an event like a workshop to happen is, is a ton. And, you know, I'm doing it on the side as my, I still have a full-time job. So that's the other, the other kicker than there is, this isn't my full-time thing. So I'm really excited to have opportunities to go to like places like Drexel University or to How Live in Chicago or different places and teach the concepts to people and to teams. And I think that's the future that I see is just going out and teaching people and really sort of giving them a kickstart where they can now take it and see see in a really short time that it's applicable and then use it in their lives. Nice. That's that's awesome. And so so we are at time. We can go a little bit long, though, because this is really interesting to me. Has your, you know, I, uh, well, so by the time this comes out, I will be completely solo. I, uh, at the time of this recording, do have a full-time job uh, that's been very good to me about being flexible to, to do the podcast and the side gig. So what's it like trying to balance uh, your full-time job with kind of your side stuff? It's a big challenge because addition, in addition to having sketchnoting on the side and the sketchnote army and teaching and then a full-time day job, I've got three little kids at home and they all want to you know, go on bike rides and play. <laughs> I have my wife that I want to go on dates with and spend time with and you know, other activities. So it's a challenge, but I think what I've learned is uh, it's important to really balance and focus on the important things. So most of the time I get it pretty good, but there's times when, you know, I miss things or, you know, made it, maybe I just made a choice that turned out it would have been better had I done it this other thing. And you just don't know, you just have to roll with it, but it's a challenge. It really is. I think if, you know, sketchnoting continues to grow and have the momentum that I see, there may become a point in time where I have to make a decision if I want to do it full time. And that's a challenge, right? When you've got a family and, and kids like to sort of make that jump as a yeah, father absolutely. and, you know, with mortgages and payments and all the other things that come with having a family, it's a big risk. It's a lot, lot bigger risk than when you're single or something. I mean, not that it's not to dismiss those. Those are, of course, risky, too, but it's a different kind of risk. Maybe is a better way to say it. So it's it's a challenge. It's, uh, it's just a matter of choosing priorities and deciding what I want to do. And I think that having that perspective helps. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I made the decision to go solo with a three-month-old in mm-hmm. the house. And it's it's so I could spend more time with her. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, you know, I, I probably would have had the bandwidth to go solo while I was single, but I had the time then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have as many expenses or a family right. to support, but I also had the time to kind of work on my full time job and and my side gig. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting balance, and it's definitely a, a tough decision, no matter what you you decide to do. 
And with that, I want to ask the last question before I get to the fast five, which I didn't prep you for, but it's just five questions uh, I like to ask. Uh, just give me your gut answer. But the first or the, the, the last official question is, do you have any trade secrets for us? Hmm. So I, I, I mentioned this at a, at a sketchnote conference that I was at, and I think um, a lot of people don't realize this. They really focus on the drawing ability and how beautiful things look in sketchnoting, particularly. But I think the secret, rep, the secret weapon in sketchnoting is really listening well. So like if you hone your listening skills, I think sketchnoting gets a lot easier because you can really clearly determine what stuff's worth keeping and what's not. And that's a really tough question to ask. People ask me, how do you know what's what's the big idea or what's important what isn't? Like, well, I I sort of can't tell you that because that's a decision that you have to make, right? It's it's all relative to what you want to get out of something, but I think if you can really focus on listening, if your listening is good, it makes everything a lot easier. And that's that's sort of my trade secret is to sort of enter into things I sketch note by really focusing on listening and sort of analyzing and piecing things together and coming to my own conclusions about what it means because ultimately that's what I'm going to take away and apply right yeah absolutely and just to to uh, add to that point uh, you definitely don't have to be good at drawing to be a good sketch noter I've always enjoyed drawing but seeing my sketch notes next to uh, the fellow who did the soccer game you know shows that the skill levels can vary uh, and you can still capture the idea well so yeah but uh so, okay, so let's get to the fast five. All right, let's do it. All right, so uh, <laughs> what is your favorite book? Hmm. I would say my favorite book is still got to be Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings series. Nice, very nice. As a follow-up, what's the last book that you read? The last book, I just read a book, an interesting book just this week by a guy named Rob Bell who uh, wrote a book called What is the Bible? And so he comes at the Bible from... Uh, a contextual perspective. He does a lot of research in scripture from from the Hebrew and uh, from the Jewish perspective. So what I like about it was um, he really looked at the context of who were the people that wrote the Bible? What was it like when they wrote it? Why did they write the things they wrote? And why did these things stick around? Like what made these things survive over thousands of years when so many other things didn't? So um, his perspective on looking at scripture was really fascinating for me and uh, quite enjoyed that one. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, man. We could have a whole other show on that. I went to 20 years of Catholic school and we mm. talked all about that. So interesting. Very cool. What is your favorite type of music? Boy, I'm I'm a really wide. I love a wide variety, but I would say if I had to choose one, I really like um, 80s music. So like 80s new wave. Nice. Nice. Uh, any band you want to shout out here? Oh boy, I'm a big New Order fan, so that would be a good choice. Um, nice. I'm really happy now lately that I'm hearing lots of bands are actually sort of trying to capture that 80s new wave alternative sound. So I'm really excited about some of the music that I'm hearing coming up, nice. coming back. Very cool. What is your favorite food? Oh, my favorite food. Boy, that's a tough one. If I was forced to narrow it down, I would I would uh, love uh, pud thai Thai food. Nice, nice. Oh man, I haven't had Thai food in a while. I'm gonna have to get that now. Which I think I say after every answer. <laughs> uh, who is your favorite sports team? Of course, it's the Green Bay Packers. I think I knew the answer <laughs> to that one. Yep. <laughs> Excited about that this year. Lots of young guys coming in. Got yeah. Got a good quarterback. So. Gotta, yep. You gotta, I, you gotta love your team wherever you're from. I respect absolute, that. Absolutely. I myself am a born and raised New Yorker, so I'm a Giants fan. But yeah. I've, I've. As long as the Packers weren't playing the Giants, I would root for the Packers. They're just a good team, you know. They're like a good group of guys, it seems like. So. Yeah, big blue, good uh, old big blue. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, and then the last question, I'll pose it to you the same way that it was posed to me, which was, if you couldn't do computer work, what would you do? So if you couldn't do the thing that you do as a, as a day job, what would you do professionally? But I think I would go into sketchnoting and that would ne- not necessarily include computers. It would be lots of whiteboarding and paper and maybe it would be iPads, but it would be more drawing focused and teaching. I think uh, teaching would be really fascinating to take con- con- you know complex ideas and simplify them and help people to see them in a new way. I think that's really exciting to see people really like glomming onto an idea and really taking it to the next step for them. It's a huge, uh, huge talent that I would love to, to build on. Awesome. Yeah, that, that sounds fantastic. I think I said on one show that I would be an animator uh, and the guest pointed out that I think animators still need to use computers. So uh, I would, I would definitely focus in more on the, the drawing and the, and the art part of it though. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Very cool. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a, we went a little long, but it was a great conversation. So I'm happy to do that. Well, thanks for making time. This is a lot of fun to sort of uh, step into a different space and share. And hopefully, uh, you know, the stuff we've talked about is helpful to some people out there. And, you know, definitely if you want to reach out and say hello, I've, I can answer questions in addition that you may have had from the, from the podcast. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me. What a great conversation. I, I loved talking to him about sketch notes in general and uh, publishing through our publisher. Uh, it's something that we have in common. And again, just a fantastic conversation. Definitely check the show notes uh, for all of Mike's contact information and the links that we talked about. Uh, and if you liked the show, uh, then definitely head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. It's how people find us. Uh, and honestly, it's it's a great way for me to get feedback from the listeners on things that work, things that don't work. And you know what? If, uh, if you leave a review, maybe I'll read it on the air. So uh, again, thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our sponsors, Liquid Web and Seriously Simple Podcasting. And until next time, get out there and build something.